Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The world is on fire. Wars rage across the globe. Hamas terrorists infiltrated Israel from multiple points at the exact same time. They flew in from the air, they came in from the sea, and they came through the border fence with one goal, which was to attack Israeli civilians. Hamas has massacred Israeli civilians. Israel has promised revenge. Israel is at war. It was forced upon us in the most brutal and savage way. But though Israel didn't start this war, Israel will finish it. Northern Ireland's political parties have distinct takes on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and are now fighting their own better war of words over it. Ultimately, the only way we're going to find peace in the Middle East is through a sustainable uh, two-state solution, and that has to be the objective that we refocus ourselves upon. You speak to Palestinians, William, they'll laugh at their face about a two-state solution. How is a two-state solution possible when you have illegal settlements in the West Bank? In this episode of The Bell Tale, we'll be discussing the war in the Middle East, how it gets transposed onto Northern Ireland politics, and of course, what the current situation is with Stormont. Commentator Sarah Crichton and the Belfast Telegraph's Northern Ireland editor Sam McBride join me to discuss. Sam, Sarah, you're both very welcome to The Bell Tale once again. Let's start with Israel-Palestine. Israel has promised terrible revenge after an unprecedented Hamas raid. The Islamic militants broke out of the Gaza Strip and proceeded not only to engage military targets, but also to slaughter civilians en masse. They have brought many hostages, including children, back to Gaza. Hamas's actions have been condemned in the West, but there remains strong support for the Palestinian cause throughout the world also. Nationalists and socialists generally have great sympathy, at least for Palestine. Unionists generally stand with Israel. The journalist Amanda Ferguson Exter tweeted at the weekend, there's absolutely nothing we can't make about ourselves. We'll discuss the actual conflict in a second, but it does always seem, Sarah, somehow it's all about us. Are we neatly divided? I'm, it, I think it's so frustrating when we make this conflict about us that we try to centre ourselves in um, a completely different situation where people are suffering and we, we go to what about me. I think the reason though why we, we adopt that 
that stance, I think, is just, I think some people see parallels between Northern Ireland and Israel-Palestine and obviously within the Republican nationalist tradition. Um, there is socialism, obviously, is very, very prominent, internationalism. So obviously people see solidarity between um things that have happened in Northern Ireland and things that have happened in Palestine as well. Obviously, there's socialism within unionism as well, but not to the same degree, let's be honest. Um, I, I do find the analogy problematic, but I can see I can see why people come to those conclusions. And I, and I and obviously just because we have been through a conflict, I think, you know, you watch these things on TV and you think, oh, we went through that and we've got through that. And I do, I always get annoyed that some people here do that kind of like, oh, God, they just, they just have to do what we did. It's a completely different situation. Um, I find it very frustrating because I... I I do also think I should add also that I think there's a bit of my enemy's enemy as my friend. It's very, very depressing. You know, I think we shouldn't be jumping to these positions based on our own positions in Northern Ireland. We should be having empathy um, for the situation. Um, I will be very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause myself, but obviously, you know, the Israelis have their pain as well. Um, it's a very nuanced situation. Um, so, yeah, I, I find it very frustrating that we do this and I, I that we jump down each other's throats. And I don't like the narrow parameters that we've set for this debate um, about this topic. So, you know, pe- people who talk about the suffering of the Palestinian people are told, oh, you're pro Hamas. And anybody that says, you know, well, you know, this is awful, those poor people. And they, you know, they went through in, in Israel, you know, they were killed. It was absolutely barbaric what happened. And people are told, oh, well, you obviously, you know, don't support, you know, Palestinian liberation. I just think that's absolutely ridiculous. So, yeah, I, I find the debate, not even just in Northern Ireland, but just generally across the UK at the moment, incredibly frustrating. Sam, do you think, the divide here on this conflict is as very as clear cut as I've maybe simplistically presented it. There have been some dissenting voices. I mean, it's it's certainly not entirely clear cut, but nothing ever is. Uh, but I think insofar as there is a clear divide here, it is pretty firm. And it's no coincidence that you will see Palestinian flags in nationalist areas. In some cases, you'll see Israeli flags. There was even at one point a sort of mock-up of a um, part Israeli flag and a part Northern Ireland flag of the old banner of Northern Ireland, which would fly in some parts um, of uh, Belfast. So there, there are parallels, as Sarah has said, There are massive elements of this that are different. The scale of this is just astronomically um, beyond what we can imagine in Northern Ireland. In the entirety of the Troubles, about three and a half thousand people were killed by whatever means and by whoever. In the last what, two, three days, there have been something like more than a thousand Israelis um, killed. There have been hundreds and I'm sure will be many thousands by the end of this Palestinians killed. I mean, that's in a matter of days. This is um, on a a completely different scale. The nature of Israel's response to terrorism here is so different to the British government's response in Northern Ireland as massively problematic as elements of the British response in Northern Ireland where Bloody Sunday, um, all manner of, of elements of what went on there. The idea of going in and using um, wartime munitions in built up areas never crossed anybody's mind. I think at one point Willie McRae madly suggested the DUP MP at, at the time madly suggested the idea of carpet bombing Dundalk because IRA fighters were fleeing across the border. That was seen as a preposterous thing even then. Uh, whereas in, in Israel that is seen as the obvious and natural response to this. So yes, there are elements of this that are 
completely different. And yet there is this element that is the same, that there are people coming in, shooting civilians um, based on their religion, um, based on their politics, based on their nationality, however you want to define that. And in the, 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 the element of this, which I think is particularly shocking in the modern age in comparison to the Troubles, is that you're having this streamed live on, in video on the internet. You're having it in one instance, um, somebody from Hamas who, who, who had done this um, had murdered someone's grandmother and had actually uploaded it to her own Facebook page using her phone. So that was how her family saw it. I mean, this this is of a different nature. And yet there is an element of that that resonates with some people in Northern Ireland, depending on their background. But just before we move on from this, I found Stephen Farry from the Alliance Party to have a very nuanced view on this. Are the Alliance Party trying to be very careful on this? Or is there, is there, I suppose, want a better word, is there some sort of market for that? I think I, I think Stephen is really just reflecting, I would say, the views of quite a lot of people, to be honest, because um, most people see the complexities in this. Um, I mean, obviously some people don't, let's be honest with you, we'll probably come on to that. But I, I think he's just trying to navigate the situation um, as best he can with, with, with the the difficulties of the situation and also just in light of um, the media framing that is going on um, internationally, locally, regionally. Um, I think he's just trying to position himself. So I, I think he speaks to a certain section of people, I think, that have watched some of the rhetoric around this and are very, very frustrated with how binary some people are being. So I, I do think there is a market for that. And I think that most people, probably around the world, but most people in Northern Ireland, in the UK, in Ireland, have got at least some sympathy with the Israelis who were slaughtered in the way that they were slaughtered. You'd have to be pretty um, ideologue, uh, you'd, you'd have to be a pretty firm ideologue to not feel some sympathy for those people. And likewise, I think most people have got some sympathy for the Palestinians who are caught in this appalling position where Hamas are running the Gaza Strip, where they're being told by Israel, get out, but to where? And where there are these massive munitions being dropped on very heavily populated areas. So I think what Stephen Farry was saying is probably not that far away from where a lot of people um, think about this, even if the proportionality of their sympathy will be very different. Some people will instinctively feel much more sympathy in one direction than the other. But I think you'd have to be pretty hard-hearted not to realise that in both areas here, civilians, ordinary people like us going about their lives, not members of an army, not members of a terrorist organisation, they're being gunned down and they're being slaughtered and that is that is chilling um, and it ought to chill us it really ought to chill us especially when one one of these nations is obviously a very technologically advanced country we use some of their technology for all I know we use some of it in this building um, it's a very it's a very sophisticated western um, partial democracy you could say in terms of how, how it runs its society um, and this this is happening in 2023 perhaps perhaps your point is that we're not as divided as perhaps it appears on Twitter. And there are many stories we could say that about. But Jerry Carroll from People Before Profit, uh, who I have to stress would say he's a socialist, came out very early in, in, in this conflict. I think it was victory to the Palestinian resistance with two fists. Now, in fairness to Jerry, he has clarified those comments and he has condemned the widespread uh, slaughter of civilians. But that that's a long-standing stance, but it, I mean that was very provocative. I I got I have a lot of time for Jerry. Um, I got the impression that he tweeted that before the full 
the full news came in that morning. You know, I remember turning on my phone and there, there was news starting to come in of the Venus attack. And then it quickly became apparent how what had happened, how it had happened, you know, the the, the absolute evil, barbaric nature, it was sadistic nature of this, this came across. Um, so I, I don't think his tweet spoke to that. And I think for obviously for people, when that news started to come through, looked at that and went, oh my goodness, what is, is he, what is he saying? Um, so I'm very glad that he has clarified that because I think that clarification was absolutely necessary. Um, yes, he is a socialist and obviously socialists would have um, a lot of empathy um, across um, with Palestine and other, other conflicts across the world. I'm trying to figure out how to how to how to phrase this delicately, but you know, I I understand why they have 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 solidarity with with the Palestinians. I completely understand why, and I completely also understand why they feel the need to state their support for Palestine at this point in time because the response of the UK at the moment seems to be that we are, we, you know, we, we say we we don't, we condemn the killing of civilians, but apparently we're not going to do anything while Israel carpet bombs the Gaza Strip and kills the civilians. And I think people are restating that support at the moment. But definitely, I, I don't think his tweet was nuanced enough. I don't think, it, I think it was very poorly timed. Um, equally, I have seen tweets from um, people in the DUP who I think have completely missed the point as well. And I don't think their, uh, their views on this matter as well. I think they should probably clarify where they stand. Sam, this will cause some bitterness here. You know, there's there's Twitter spats, there will be radio spats, there will be strongly written letters and articles. This this doesn't help depoison our own atmosphere, but this this couldn't affect Stormont or, or, or any possible return to Stormont, could it? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think this this does poison the atmosphere. It does um, cause people to um, get at each other's throats in a in a in a in a metaphorical way. Um, but I think that when when you look at where we've come from, what Sinn Fein is saying in response to this is actually, by historical standards, for Sinn Fein, very measured. Mary Lou Macdonald has come out and condemned what Hamas have done. Now there are plenty of times where Hamas has engaged in um, in, in in similar incidents, but not of this scale and Sinn Féin has not adopted that stance. You've got a bit of a mixed message there. Other people in the party um, much more um, swinging behind um, the the cause of Palestine, even if they're not explicitly saying they support what happened here, but there's that element of of, of some ambiguity. Um, but certainly, I think that there, there could have been a response from Sinn Féin here if it wasn't for, let's say, their massive electoral ambitions in the South. There could have been a response that was more inflammatory, that would make it harder for the DUP to sell going back into government with them. But I think, frankly, anybody in the DUP, anybody who votes DUP, knows Sinn Féin's views on these issues and they don't like them, they don't agree with them, but they don't agree with them on almost anything. That's the reality of, of, the, of the stance they're in. I do think, going, going back to Jerry Carroll, there is a quite unpalatable element to this that, to an extent, I think we have to face up to, that there are people in our society and around the world who just don't like Jews um, and who don't like Israel, don't want it to exist at all, not because of what it does, but simply because because it does exist and there are votes in that. Um, I'm not saying that Jerry Carroll did that because he didn't believe in it. I think he does believe in it. But I think it's also electorally advantageous where Sinn Féin are not adopting that old historic stance for him to move in and do this. I mean, if you if you look at one of the one of the incidents um, just overnight um, prior, prior to us recording this um, in Australia, where there was a large crowd chanting, gas the Jews. I mean, openly in public, a large crowd of people. This sort of stuff is real. And I think what... What is quite scary about this to me is that we we look back at 
horrific crimes in the past. We look at the Holocaust, we look at the firebombing of Dresden, we look at the, at in, 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 our, in our own context, we look at places like Le Mans, we look at Darkly, we look at some of these really grim um, insights into the, the deep depravity of the human heart in certain circumstances. And we wonder, how could anybody do that? How could anybody support that? And here you've got a situation where people are quite openly gloating. Um, and I'm sure there'll be people who will be gloating on the other side. I'm not suggesting this is one-sided, but it's quite disturbing when you see that. And while social media is in many ways a horrible thing for exposing this, it's also quite helpful in reminding us that there is something in a lot of us that is a lot darker than we maybe like to let on. I was going to say, you know, I think for some people when they come to this like a spectator sport, it's like, you know, they're cheering on their football team and because they have distance from it. And we know this from Northern Ireland as well. And we know people, this from the Ukraine. We know this from Ukraine, you know, because, because, you know, nothing frustrates me more than when people from outside Northern Ireland comment on this conflict and come off with just the most bizarre things. And they say these things and it's so easy for them to sit there and say that. I'm not saying they can't have a view, but there's some people, they are chronically online. And for them, it's about a vibe. It's about their aesthetic. It's about, you know, they, they, they completely, as you say, detach their humanity from this and I, I find it so frustrating and it makes me really angry, you know. We are sitting, of course, many thousands of miles away from southern Israel, from Gaza. We're discussing this story. We have to discuss it from our own point of view, I think, because we don't come with any particular expertise, although I, I do suspect that people have a deep interest in this story. Israel declared a complete siege of the Gaza Strip. Uh, saying electricity, food, fuel and water would be cut off. Benjamin Netanyahu has said they're going to change the Middle East. The defence minister um, has used a phrase which has been described, which has been translated as describing Hamas or the uh, inhabitants of Gaza. It's not clear as, as animals. These are, very, these are very big statements. I just wonder how bad could this possibly get now? I think it could get really, really bad. There are wider regional implications. Um, I know some people have linked the Hamas attack to Iran, though I also read that some people are trying to counter that. There are huge regional implications here that that Israel is going to accelerate what it is already doing, which is obviously going to aggravate the Palestinians even more than they already have been aggravated. I mean, Israel declaring a complete war on Gaza. I mean, it's been at war with the Palestinian people for decades. Let's be honest, okay? And it's just, it's very, very concerning. I mean, for years now, there really hasn't been much of a peace process. I mean, when I was in university, you know, we would have studied Oslo, Camp David, all these other types of peace accords. There hasn't been a peace process for years. And, and it is in part, in my view, and I'm not saying obviously Hamas have made terrible, terrible mistakes in the Palestinians. I think at times have done things that, that I disagree with and have made decisions about that I disagree with. But, you know, the Israelis with the part of the reason why um, Hamas was able to infiltrate into that part of Israel was because the IDF were in the West Bank furthering settlements and kicking Palestinians out of their land. So this has the potential to completely charge the region. So I, I think it could get very, very dangerous. And I, I wish there were more voices calling for de-escalation and a ceasefire. As you say, the IDF are heavily engaged in defending settlements in the West Bank. And every commentator has been saying, well, they remember driving through the West Bank 20 years ago, and now you just drive through settlement after settlement after settlement after settlement. If the Arab world were going to do something about this, they would have done it by now. And that's, that's, mm. Gaza is under siege from Israel and Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, the, the, the Palestinians 
don't have a lot of sympathy even within their fellow Arab nations. That has always been the case. Um, you know, they went to Lebanon and then I think Lebanon kicked them out years ago. There are so many interconnected things going on here. As I said, if Iran is getting involved with this, that's going to have implications with the United States. Um, there's uh, We're probably going to come on to talk about the EU and its position on this. I think it has the potential to get out of control, really. And it, there's been normalisation with Israel, I think, over the past couple of years. This could maybe go backwards. So it, it, it's very worrying, as I said, going forward. Can I ask, Sam, the UK has said... As the word absolute right of, of, of defence, that's Rishi Sunak's word. I just wonder, would Germany, the UK and the US place any limit on Israeli action? Because I do, the human beings can't survive without water. Some people are already saying that that is a war crime. Well, at, at the moment, it seems that certainly the West almost to a nation, is standing very firmly with Israel and giving them incredible space to maybe not quite do what they like, but pretty close to it right now. As time goes on, as Western publics see the implications of that for children, for families, for civilians, I think that will start to change. And you will see what has happened in the past, where even America, which can be very gung-ho when it comes to some of these things, has in the past been a restraining influence, where Israel wants to go beyond um, where um, they think it's prudent to go or where it's acceptable for them to be seen to be supporting them and going. They're obviously sending in munitions. They've sent an aircraft carrier carrier quite close to that part of the Mediterranean. Um, But I think that if you look at Rishi Sunak and you look at the politics of this in Britain, where has he been taking the Tory party over recent weeks in particular? Very firmly to the right, very much a tough law and order stance, um, right to the extent where he's embracing preposterous conspiracy theories and certainly among his ministerial team and all manner of stuff that was really quite alarming coming out of the Tory party conference last week. So it's no surprise, I think, that he will be very robustly standing behind Israel here and probably hoping that that drives a bit of a wedge with Labour here. Uh, And so far that hasn't happened. Labour have been also very robust. I think it'll be interesting to see in a week's time, in two weeks' time, in three weeks' time, because this is not going to end very quickly, uh, where where that stands. Is Labour able to, um, to keep this consensus? Are the Tories able to get a chink there politically? And that might seem quite crude that this is simply about party politics in British politics. I'm not suggesting that either of these groups don't care about the actual issues. I think they do in many cases. But there is a desperation about the Conservative Party right now. They know they're going to lose the next election unless something turns up and suddenly something enormous has turned up. Are there any pro-Palestinian voices left in Labour? Uh, I I mean, you're talking about dividing Labour from the Conservatives. I, I didn't expect that. I, I, is, is there a space that you could well, get a piece of wedge in? I'm not well, sure. If you, if you, I mean, thus far, no. So that's that's the interesting thing. But if you if you look at the Labour Party membership, these are the people who, in many cases, elected Jeremy Corbyn. Some of those people have left, but lots of them are still there. Uh, they don't like the current leadership, but that's absolutely where they're their sympathies lie much more in that direction than towards Israel. So I think as time goes on, as people start to see the implications of this for civilians, that's that's going to be a difficult line, I think, for Keir Starmer to hold if that's what he wants to do. Yeah, I just wonder, has, has Hamas's actions really prepared Western populations to accept Israeli actions beyond what we've seen since 1948? I think Hamas have done tremendous damage to the Palestinian cause by doing what they've done. The tactics they've adopted are shocking. 
Um, and I think that it was a complete thing. Nobody expected this. You know, experts in the Middle East are saying we have no idea what is going on here. Um, I, I do think there, I do worry that that could be the case that because the nature of this attack is so senseless and barbaric, um, it's the death toll just rises every time you check the news that, that, there could be an opening here for some people in the West to agree with what Israel has done, which I think will be which would be terrible. I think because um, I mean let's not forget you know the Israeli government has before this happened there were millions of Israelis on the street protesting against the Israeli government. It, it's a far right coalition, um, so I think it's very very worrying if we, if we go in that direction. We've seen traumatic, I suppose, uh, events in the on the European Commission. Ursula von der Leyen has been coming out very strongly for um, Israel. Uh, there are questions as to, well, who give her the mandate for that? The, uh, European policy set not by the Commission, who are civil servants, but by the European Council. And one commissioner, one of Ursula von der Leyen's commissioner, Hungarian, unilaterally t- took the decision to suspend aid to the Palestinians. That's now been rescinded. Uh, we understand Ireland were a big part of that. Ireland, Spain, Luxembourg and Denmark vetoed these plans to stop EU aid to the Palestinians. Is this a is this a split in the EU or is this just a minor a minor um, bureaucratic? It was very surprising when the EU earlier this week said that they were going to stop all aid to the Palestinian people. I mean, that that is a drastic step. That's that's moving into territory that goes way beyond Hamas, albeit there are concerns about whether some of that aid was seeping through to Hamas because of the nature of Palestinian life. Uh, but it was it was not surprising, I think, when they rode back from that. Um, I think the, the fact that they were willing to go that far, um, and yes, there was an element of maybe a solo run there, but it was in line in many ways with what was coming out of European capitals. There was this, you know, they were they were covering the Brandenburg Gate in the in the in the flag of Israel. Um, you had the German Chancellor standing, um, you know, a, a very powerful image given the history of the 20th century, standing, speaking in German and saying, "We stand with Israel." Um, there, there was a very very um, firm sense in European capitals that they were absolutely on Israel's side here, even if instinctively they're pretty sceptical about Israel in places like Dublin. Uh, but I think it was surprising that they went so far there and. I wasn't shocked when they moved back in the other direction. If we can turn now to our own politics, and I understand this is very mundane now, uh, and it almost seems unimportant when it's, it was so important last week, but this week it just seems like, well, I think the Dreer Steeples comment comes in, comes to my mind, but right, here we are, our own politics or, or lack of it. Jeffrey Donaldson, he hasn't led the DUP back into Stormont. There are many debates continuing within unionism on that. Internally, uh, difficulties with loyalism. Sam McBride, where are we at? Well, it's not entirely clear, and we've had this conversation many times before, but it, it is becoming slightly clearer. I think we have had the most significant statement from Jeffrey Donaldson since he walked out of Stormont. Uh, I think we have seen the start of the road back into Stormont, even if it's not clear how long that's road, that road is going to be and when exactly he's going to start off um, walking down that road towards Parliament buildings. He is starting to make the argument that this is not simply about the protocol. The protocol's bad, he says, bad for the union. The Windsor framework hasn't fixed it. The Irish Sea border's still there. He's not trying to spin that away. It seems thus far, he says there's going to be some other legislation from the British government, but he's not even trying 
at this point, it seems, to pretend that that will get rid of the Irish Sea border because we all know it will not. And I think there, there, is, there is an element here where um, he might be wisely deciding not to try to pretend that something which is black is actually white. However, what he is saying is that that's not the only issue for unionism. Suddenly we're hearing this very, very different message from the DUP, a message that has been um, very familiar to people in the Austrian Unionist Party. They've been saying this for a long time, very familiar to lots of people outside unionism and inside unionism, but not in the DUP, not in the TUV, saying if the union is going to survive, we need to think strategically. So are we actually harming the union by trying to save the union um, from the Irish sea border? And he's starting to make that argument. And that, I think, is enormously significant. But the one thing that I'm not sure about at this point is is this a precursor to a um, a planned decision to go back in in a set period of time or a rough period of time? It might be. But it's equally possible that this is him floating the idea as a kite to see how it gets on. How do people react to this? How do DUP supporters react to this? He knows the polling. He knows the anecdotal evidence from his party and from their voters. And I just wonder if getting out the idea that they might go in in a few weeks' time or a few months' time is to see... What's the blowback in this? Do people care? Or actually, are they saying, you know what? It actually maybe is time to get back in. And I, I was struck by one former DUP MLA who texted me, I think about a fortnight ago, uh, saying, now is the time to get back in. This is not somebody who's a liberal in the DUP. This is somebody who I would have thought was a very much a hardliner. They said that, um, that the DUP had managed to make Sinn Féin look like saints, um, said that they needed to now basically just cut a deal. They're not going to get rid of things. It's not going to be good for them, but it's better than the alternative. That, I think, could be quite significant if that's reflective of other people in the party. But you've written in recent weeks, Sam, that maybe maybe you have got it all wrong. <laughs> quite possibly. And that's, that, that Jeffrey Donaldson would be happy enough with direct rule. Maybe, maybe he's not the devolutionist we all assumed, really, that he is. So I, I was saying something slightly different to that. So let me let me let me explain this. So I was looking at who Jeffrey Donaldson is, and we all make assumptions about politicians. We think that we know who they are, what they want to do, and broadly we fit them into a particular box. And for Jeffrey Donaldson, that was the Peter Robinson box. Essentially, he was a reformist, and um, fairly moderate, but not very liberal unionist politician. Fairly traditional in his outlook, but somebody who believed in devolution, who never wanted to pull down Stormont, who did it out of desperation because his party was falling apart. And now is sort of stuck with that, but would desperately love to get back in. I still think there's a lot of truth in that. However, I started to think about this a bit more critically and wonder, have we actually got that wrong? Look at who Jeffrey Donaldson is and where he comes from. He was the protege of James Molyneux, the Austrian Unionist leader, who for 16 years um, was leader of the Austrian Unionist Party. He took over when they were in the wilderness. He basically spent those 16 years going further into the desert. He had no real plan beyond a vague sense of wanting to make Northern Ireland more like the rest of the UK, trying to integrate Northern Ireland into the rest of the UK. it governed in a similar way to Manchester or at that point Glasgow before you would have had um, any sort of regional assemblies there. And that that is something which um, is widely seen now by people who are unionist or not unionist as pretty catastrophic for unionism. 16 years of drift. Peter Robinson actually was one of the people who identified that in the in the mid to late 1980s. Uh, and so there there is both him and there's also another person called Enoch Powell who is famous for other reasons but he was the MP for South Down 
around for a while. Jeffrey Donaldson was his election agent. He again was mentored by him. He spoke very highly of him. And both of these men were very influential in Jeffrey Donaldson's life. In, in, in Jeffrey Donaldson's life, both of them were um, people who were integrationists, so they didn't believe in devolution. I'm not suggesting that Jeffrey Donaldson doesn't believe in devolution, but what I think is equally significant is another factor um, which marked Jim Molyneux's leadership of the Unionist Party, and that was basically weakness. He was a weak man. He was somebody who wanted to do a particular thing. He wanted integrationism, but he was never prepared to force the issue. So he, ha- he had people around him like David Trimble, like David McNary, um, like Frank Miller, people who were committed devolutionists, and he wanted to have this big tent where everybody could be in it and it was incoherent it was ludicrous it never really went anywhere uh, but that that was his idea party unity above everything else and that I think is what we're starting to see with Jeffrey Donaldson here we are two years into his leadership we've a good sense now of who he is uh, Robert Caro the the great American biographer says that power doesn't always corrupt but it always reveals people who are climbing the greasy pole often conceal what they want to do when they get to the top because there's a certain expediency your party will only accept certain things until you get there One Once you get there, you have power and we see what these people really are. And what has Jeffrey Donaldson really done when he's been there? He's pulled down Stormont. He's stayed out of Stormont. He's made no argument up until, well, three days after I wrote that article. And I'm not suggesting that's in any way linked. But um, at the time of writing, uh, he had made no argument even about going back into Stormont. Uh, This is a period of drift. And the final thing, and sorry that I'm rambling on here, is that I think that while Jim Molyneux was able to get away with this because unionism in the 1980s was so dominant, uh, Sinn Féin were barely there. The SDLP were very much a a, a firmly mi- a, f- a, f- a firm party of the minority. Now unionism is a minority. It's getting smaller year by year. If this happens for another five years, let alone 16, it's going to be catastrophic for unionism. And that's why I thought that was potentially significant. Sarah, how do you follow that? Um, it's one of these things where Unionism has this habit of doing something and then a couple of years later goes, oh, you know what, that was a bad idea. That actually that actually was really bad for us. That actually had unintended consequences that actually made things worse. It, they do it over and over and over again. And when Stormont collapsed a couple of years ago, you know, I said, I, I think this is going to have the unintended consequences for unionism. You know, I think it's going to damage the union as much as I understand why unionists are opposed to the, to the sea border, though I'm, I'm much more of a pragmatist. And I was told, no, 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 this was the last thing to do. It, it You know, everybody saw this coming and, you know, that comment, it's made Sinn Féin look like saints. I mean, everybody knew that was going to be the case, you know, because things were so bad after COVID and now things are even worse because of this budget that the Secretary of State has, has brought through. People are suffering. It, it is it is absolutely horrendous. The things I'm hearing on the ground, things I hear from people that I work with, um, that people are, the fact that we don't have an elected assembly at this point, you know, these decisions are being taken by civil servants. It's outrageous and, and unionism has allowed this to happen. Well, specifically the DUP has allowed this to happen. So, they need to get back in. And I, I don't understand the logic of saying, well, we'll be operating the protocol. Well, look, the Westminster's going to be operating the protocol. I don't, I just don't understand the logic. And I noted when Jeffrey Donaldson issued a statement in response to Jamie Bryson, he had this line, you know, we have to win the hearts and minds of people to secure the union. And you're like, yes, <laughs> how do you not understand this? Um, you know, unionism says these things over and over again. I mean, Peter Robinson was saying something years and years ago, um, and they just don't do it. Um, so at this point, really, the question is, why Why does unionism not do what it's supposed to do? They know that unionism has a very difficult road ahead. And as Sam said, you know, if this keeps happening over five years, it's going to be in a very bad place. The, the demographics show in terms of young people that they're not voting unionist. You know, what is what is the strategy going forward? And there isn't one, um, as far as I can say. 
You mentioned Jimmy Bryson, and I don't want to get bogged down in Jimmy Bryson, but from your own point of view, what has been described as new wave loyalism, I, I just wonder, is Jimmy Bryson such a political force or have we in the media somehow created Jimmy Bryson? How much influence does Jimmy Bryson actually have on Jeffrey Donaldson? I think I think he does have a bit of influence quite clearly. They've shared a platform together. Um, some of the things that Jeffrey Donaldson and the DUP have said has come directly from his mouth. Jimmy said it first. You could, you, you know, it's inescapable. He's part of the Centre for the Union, which other DUP members are there. He obviously has a lot of influence. I think to put him as being entirely representative of loyalism, I think is wrong. Loyalism is very diverse. There's a wide range of views there. Um, women in loyalism, I think their voices are very, very important in particular. I don't think they get enough airtime. Um, but yes, absolutely, there definitely is a new wave of loyalism. But obviously, I'm, I'm not a loyalist. So obviously I don't feel like I can comment entirely too much on what on what that is and what it should be, et cetera, et cetera. But um, he has influence, whether we like it or not. Um, I disagree with Jamie Bryson on many, many things. Um, I think my views on him are quite clear. Um, so I, I sincerely hope that the DUP start to listen to multiple views going forward and not just one. I, I remember a couple of years ago on the BBC saying something along the lines of, uh, if you want to know what the DUP are going to do next, don't listen to what Jeffrey Donaldson is saying. Look at what Jim Allister is saying and look at what Jimmy Bryson is saying. And when you look over the last couple of years, I think that's broadly been pretty right. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I got that right because I got lots of things wrong. But I think we are coming to a fork in the road here. Jeffrey Donaldson and Jimmy Bryson are going to diverge. They are going to go down different roads. Jimmy Bryson is against Stormont. He doesn't want the Good Friday Agreement. He wants to pull down the entire edifice of devolution as it is currently constructed. And Jeffrey Donaldson simply doesn't agree with that. I know lots of nationalists will look at this and think, you know what, this guy, uh, in, in, in terms of Jeffrey Donaldson, he opposed the Good Friday Agreement. He walked out of the talks. He tried to bring down Trimble. He doesn't believe in this. All of that's true. But he's made his peace with it and he's working it and he has worked it. He's been a junior minister with Sinn Féin. He has said publicly in the House of Commons he will come back into Stormont to be Deputy First Minister personally. Uh, I think he's genuine about that, um, although I think that he might stall for time there in terms of doing that immediately if he thinks Stormont isn't stable. But um, there, there is a point coming where they're going to diverge and that's going to be very interesting. He has, as Suzanne Breen, my colleague, has said, he has made Jeffrey, uh, sorry, Jeff, Jeff, Jeffrey Donaldson has made Jimmy Bryson, this much more um, significant figure than he otherwise would have been. You share a platform with him as the leader of unionism. You promote him. You copy his language. You copy his policies. You um, are clearly working hand in glove with him on many of these issues over the last couple of years. It's not easy to walk away from somebody like that. And he's going to take a lot of damage, I think, there. Now, can he ride that out? Quite possibly. Jimmy Bryson is not representative of the broad body of unionist opinion. I think he probably knows that because he He's not a stupid guy. Um, but I think that there is a sense here that out of expediency, they have been shackled together and both of them knew that at some point that was going to end. And the only question is, how messy is that split going to be when it comes? Just before we, we finish up, I've just wondered, and maybe I'm giving a false impression, I'm just worried, we're, we're, we haven't been talking much about nationalism. Can't help noticing, parties like the SDLP always talked about the Good Friday Agreement constantly, constantly. There's an awful lot of talk now. It seems to have gone down the the uh, the running order slightly, and we they seem to be talking about the entirely plausible New Ireland being the best way to meet them. Do you think that after 25 years of of talking up the Good Friday Agreement, that nationalism, with demographic changes, with difficulties in unionism, might seem very keen to move on? 
Um, I think, yes, given the current situation, the dire state of our public services, the dire state of our public finances, people are angry, people are furious. Um, many people, many people who are very much in the middle ground, people who who are very apathetic from politics, I, people I speak to are, are furious and have opinions on this. And nationalism is maybe saying... And giving out the impression, I think, that it is trying to tap into that feeling and moving into a space where it can say, you know, the solution to our problems is in New Ireland, Northern Ireland has failed. And I've, I've said this to unionists before because they always think that, you know, the, the arguments for a border poll are going to be Republican and very nationalist. They're not. They're, they're probably going to come into a border poll saying, you know what, we love Northern Ireland as well. Northern Ireland's fantastic. You know what would make it better? A united Ireland. And that's the argument they're going to use. So if the SDLP are going in that direction, that's, that's, what they're, that's why they're doing so, I think. I think I think as well, lots of people who love the the Good Friday Agreement in terms of what they say and who were celebrating it um, just a few months ago for its 25th anniversary actually aren't quite as in love with its detail. So they like the idea of peace, obviously. Who doesn't? They like the idea of working together. They like the idea of power sharing. They like the big sort of principles of the Good Friday Agreement, but they don't like the detail of it allowing, for instance, the DUP to hold down Stormont. I mean, that stems directly from the Good Friday Agreement. Um, from the idea that you have to have everybody in the tent, you can't get on if you don't have the big parties um, at the at the at the uh, at the Stormont executive table, and so therefore I think there is a growing realization that there are problems with the Good Friday Agreement. The difficulty, and I think we've talked about this before, is how do you alter those? This was an agreement that was passed by referendum, north and south. How can and that that is what gives it its very unique democratic legitimacy, makes it very hard for people like Jamie Bryson or dissident Republicans to argue against it and say. It doesn't have support. It was passed by the public. Do you then go to the public with a new version of it if you alter the rules, if you change the rules? And the vulnerability, I think, for the DUP is that that would probably pass quite handsomely. So there's there's a problem for them. But there's also a problem for nationalism. If you pass something that massively rows back on the significant um, clout that it gave to minorities, which obviously in 1998 was nationalism, but now is unionism, nationalism and others, because all three are um, very much minorities. How does that look to the typical hardline unionist? So they think we had to accept this for whatever, 20 years, more than 20 years, whenever we were um, the the um, the bigger party here. And now that we're the smaller party, the rules have to be rewritten. I think it's just, it's ripe for somebody like Jimmy Bryson, like Jim Allister to say, this is a two-tier system. So there, there are problems, I think, with Good Friday Agreement. We've covered them in great detail. I think there's lots of it needs to be changed, but I don't think it's easy to change that. SNP wipeout possible after seismic Labour by-election win says Scottish Tory. Now that's a headline from the Daily Telegraph. It's based on Labour's win in the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election. The SNP took an absolute kicking. Uh, it is a blow for them. Grievous one? Fatal one for, for, for Scottish independence? What do you think, Sarah? I think we have reached peak S- peak SNP. I, I do think we're going to start to see the, their decline from now. Um, I, obviously, I think, you know, the Nicola Sturgeon, um, the, the crisis within the party. Also, just they've been in party for very long, they've been in power for a very long time. This is what happens when you've been in power for a long time. And I think people who are pro-independence in Scotland, I think it's showing them that you can't just rely on one party to bring that about. Um, but this is a good opportunity, I think, for Labour to move in. And obviously, because when Labour has been in power previously, it has always had good seats from Scotland to have that majority. I don't. I think it's going to take a very long time for Labour to ever get that back. Um, but I think this is probably the start of it. I, I wonder. Some people in the SNP think they should relax on independence. Others think they should double down on it. It's a hard decision. Well, look. 
I think far more significant than anything they say about independence is that they've been governing Scotland for an awful long time and they're just clapped out. They're tired. They're like the Tories. Um, they're like New Labour were by the time they got to the end of the Gordon Brown era. There comes, as Sarah says, a natural point in the democratic electoral cycle where a party has been in power for too long. Frankly, I think the DUP are in this place in Northern Ireland. The problem here is that there's no one really there to take over from them where they're just tired. They don't really believe what they're saying themselves. They realise that they've all sorts of skeletons in the closet. Lots of them are out of the closet. I mean, it's just, it's a massive problem. And so I do think that they are just headed towards a massive, um, a massive punishment at the at the next election. I do think though, while their current leader, um, Humza Youssef, has taken over in these incredibly difficult circumstances, he hasn't been massively impressive, even though he's had a very, very difficult hand that's been dealt to him. I thought that coming back to where we started this conversation about what's going on in Palestine, what's going on in Israel, I thought that his response to that was remarkably impressive. This is somebody who um, is a is a is a ethnic minority first minister of Scotland. It's not a straightforward thing for him to deal with. His parents-in-law, as it happens, are trapped in Gaza. His wife almost certainly is, you know, really completely beside herself with worry about that. He came out. Um, he spoke very powerfully about that in personal terms, but he didn't duck the hard questions. He was asked, "Are are are, are Hamas um, in what they have done here? Are they terrorists?" And he said. Absolutely yes, and he then said um, he then said that both Palestinian and Jewish lives are equal of in, in in terms of those those people from both those jurisdictions who are civilians who are being slaughtered, and I thought that he sounded like a statesman. I thought he sounded really like somebody um, who was leading opinion when lots of people haven't been doing that. But I just think it's far too little, far too late. They are shot to bits in terms of their their parliamentary party, in terms of their their party in the Scottish Parliament, and their policies. I think in many cases now just look desperately out of date we'll have to leave it there but thank you both Sam, Sarah thanks very much when you get an Irish independent digital subscription you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips for a limited time you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card so what are you waiting for get the whole kit and caboodle Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.